You are Locked On Indians, your daily Cleveland Indians podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Locked On Indians. I'm your host, Jeff Ellis. Today's show, we're going to finish off the all-time Indians. We're going to talk about a little bit of news. Um, nothing really direct about the Indians, but we do have some things to talk about, and we'll start off there. As uh, if you've been following this, you know the all-time series is going to be one that takes up a, a meaty portion of the show. I hope everyone out there is doing well um, while we are doing kind of the uh, social distancing quarantine here. I do have a two-year-old who goes to daycare, and I have managed to catch whatever it is that was going through the daycare. It is not the, the corporate thing. Don't, don't worry about that, and I'm not stating that. It's just the typical gunk that goes through a daycare. So um, if I sound a little off, I managed to catch something else for my daughter. So the news of the day. So the Indians joined in with the announcement of all teams that they're going to be you know, paying workers who are not uh, working while games aren't happening. And like honestly, it's the least they can do because they're charging people for those games anyways at this point in time. We talked about it in yesterday's show. So um, all teams are doing that now. You know, the, I give them credit if they're one of like the initial group. They weren't. I give them more credit if they weren't charging for tickets, which they are. Um, it is literally the least they can do at this point in time. Um, there are some organizations doing stuff in their minor leaguers. We'll see what happens with the Indians, but that's kind of my take. This was honestly, they joined in with a coalition of all the teams to do something they probably should have already pledged to do uh, beforehand. The other interesting piece of news was over on MLB.com. I had missed a story that came out a day or two ago. You know, there's the vault on MLB.com where you can pick who's going to be the the number one player uh, basically for the next 10 years. You're looking at 2020 through 2029. Yeah, I looked at some of those, and it's, uh, you know, Mike Clevenger saying Garrett Cole. Like, guys, he, he's already in his late 20s. That's not a, not a good one. Cy Young Awards to Trevor Bauer. I know he's your buddy, but come on. You know, everything else with Ronald Acuna, you know, that makes sense. But that's the thing. If you're picking someone who's good now, it's probably a poor choice. Like, I mean, Blake Snell, Mike Trout, MVP awards, okay, there's a decent chance just because he's that good. But uh, you go through Nelson Cruz, Shane Bieber is all over his, uh, J.D. Davis, no answer for uh, team wins, Mike Trout for MVP again, I'm like, okay. Josh Hader for strikeouts by a pitcher, I was like, really? Um, But the one thing that came out, an article came out on... uh, yesterday kind of going through this and and how many people chose Shane Bieber for the awards and that you know he could be the next big ace the next big thing uh then they go really in depth this article by David Adler over on MLB.com if you're an Indians fan it's totally worth uh reading and checking out talking about his improvements his pitch mixes most swinging strikes on a breaking pitch last year that was Shane Bieber uh his number of in the zone uh, strikes was 10th highest uh, in 2018 and then last year was 104th out of 143 again that's good you want to be lower it means that you know guys are missing on stuff that aren't in the zone and the number of meatball pitches which I thought was a fun thing I hadn't seen that the meatball percentage which is middle middle pitches most likely place you're going to get killed by a hitter uh, dropped from 9%, which was 4th highest in 2018, to 6.04 in 2019. Yes, it's it's only like 2.6, but that's still like a third of a drop. Uh, and that drops him all the way down to 98th out of the 143 that qualified last year. So that's, that's pretty big 
improvements. You know, he uh, stopped using his four seam, started relying on other stuff. His secondary offerings are there. And as players talk about, they know he's not going to walk you. They know that he is not someone who gives up walks. So you have to go up there swinging, and he takes advantage of it. And he's able to use that to set up hitters. And, you know, I've, I've talked about throughout, you know, I understand why, you know, approaching Clevenger for an extension makes sense. I don't think he's likely to do it because he's got really one chance at free agency because he had such a late debut in the majors. But Bieber is the guy to go up and target and try to get that year, that contract done where you buy out a few years of free agency. He was a, you know, a, a later pick. He was a, I want to say a six-rounder. He was not a big money guy, but he moved quickly through the minors. You know, he like I said, he doesn't have that money built up. He's a guy where you're going to be able to offer more incentive by buying those years out. And uh, with those years of control that you have at this point in time, he's the one that, more than anyone else, the Indians should definitely be targeting, uh, locking up to a long-term deal. And wouldn't it be nice if they took advantage of this time off to, to try something like that, approach his agent and see? You've got, there's not a whole lot you can do right now if you're the Cleveland Indians. So let's try to get some guys extended. If you can't extend Lindor, which, I mean, I've been saying for five years, it feels like, but it's probably only been three or four now, that... Uh, they can't extend Lindor. Like, that's just life. Bieber is the guy. It'd be nice to come out and be like, okay, deal done. We've got one guy, and you've got this opportunity now. I hope they'll take advantage of it. I want to remind everyone to check out the uh, Locked On Baseball podcast with Sully. Good dude. Great podcast. Check it out. It's our flagship podcast. And then I also want to give a big shout-out to Withings. You know how important sponsorship is for us over on the MLB side of things. They are our second sponsor this year. If you need a scale... This is the smart scale to get. You know, they were ranked the, you know, they were the first ones to have a smart scale, and they are still the best. In fact, Tom's Guide rated Withings Body Plus the best overall smart scale in 2020. If you're looking to lose weight, willpower is the key, but so is having the right tools to make that job easier. Withings are known for durability and exceptional user-friendly design. Step on and data from every weigh-in syncs automatically to the free app, which is for iOS or Android. When you can use Wi-Fi, did that last time wi-fi or bluetooth Uh, most scales don't have that wi-fi option which means you need to carry your phone with you with the wi-fi option it means you can if you leave your phone in the other room it's fine you can still get all of your data sent straight there here is the deal you get this awesome scale that even gives you a weather report uh it gives you your weight, your full body, and weight trends, and the weather report, and you can have update separate users who it can identify, but you're going to get that scale for 25% off right now at withings.com. For a limited time, if you go to withings.com, W-I-T-H-I-N-G-S.com, backslash MLB, you get 25% off the body plus uh, body composition scale. That's W-I-T-H-I-N-G-S dot com slash MLB to get 25% off the body plus body composition scale. If you need a new scale, do us a favor. Go to Withings. I, I honestly, I mean it when I say I think it's a, a pretty cool, interesting product. When I did the research on it, and we're back. Time for all-time Indians, three to one at second base, a position that uh, has been uh, short-term excellence. Is I think what we'd go through when we did six to four. Um, some players that had shorter runs. And in some regards, I think that also applies to number three on the list. If we're looking at all-time war value, um, not single season or anything, this player is 33rd right now, uh, barely ahead of Estrubal Cabrera, a little bit behind Shinju Chu, uh, 
so it's interesting because Jason Kipnis is that player. He's 33. 34 is Estrubal. 35 is Roberto Almar. 36 is Carlos Baerga. And they're all within, you know, 1.3 of each other. So that just kind of sets up the value. You know, if you go up, though, from 33 to 29, that's where Michael Brantley sits. If we go up 26, Trav, uh, Travis Hafner, another guy who had kind of that short career. And then if we jump up to 24, you're looking at Jose Ramirez. 23, Albert Bell. 22, Francisco Lindor. 21, Brady Sizemore. And 20 will be the number two guy on the list. So Kipnis, I talked about when it was announced he'd signed with the Cubs. We talked about him a few times. Two-time All-Star struggled with effectiveness during his time in Cleveland and by effectiveness I mean consistent effectiveness until his kind of breakout in 2015 uh, those first four years in the majors he was a house of fire in the first half and in the second half was a well below average player it was like clockwork Um, he didn't have a single month uh, I remember doing writing an article on this where it's like he doesn't have a single month from July on with an OPS over 700 it's just it's all well below, and you're at that point in time, he was over, you know, 200 or so uh, plate appearances, or maybe it was over 400 plate appearances for each of those months. So it was a good amount of data. He, uh, you look at those, the top seasons, and the, the, those are the, the 2013 and then the 2015 and 2016 season. 2015, 2016, uh, really kind of the, the stalwarts, and it is interesting because it was 2012 and 2013 where the the next two strong years in there. But essentially, after the 2016 season where he is a, you know, a 29-year-old, the wheels start to come off. Injury-plagued, injury... And then even when he's healthy, 147 games in 2018, he's largely ineffective, a well-below-average bat. All of a sudden, his defensive metrics improved steadily. It's like... You don't typically see that where the defense gets better for a middle infielder as they're getting to their 30s. But with Kipnis, um, the offense kind of went away at that point. Going into that, those seasons, that's these last three years, if we're getting, we again go over and we look at the war, it's like 0. 0.4, 1.7, 0. 0.7. Not much in there. Like, what, 2.8? That's kind of what you're hoping I mean, he was doing better than that in his, his 20s per year. Uh, Kipnis is an interesting player. I can go back and remember when he was drafted. Uh, that was one of my early years covering the draft. He was, uh, in 2008, he was taken in the fourth round as, I'm assuming, a draft-eligible sophomore. Uh, because, you know, I, this is the, the thing. I wasn't super deep in the 2008-2009 draft. But with an April 3rd birthday, yeah, I'm betting he was, which is interesting because the Indians would probably never draft him anymore. Uh, didn't sign with the Padres. This is in the old days where you could go well over um, the max values. There wasn't really a cap in place like we saw starting in 2011. So doesn't sign with the Padres in 2004. He's a very celebrated college player at that point in time. Uh, excellent, huge numbers. And he's an outfielder, though. Uh, the Indians draft him, and they were heavily connected to him. Like, I had heard that they liked Kipnis back when I had almost no connections to anyone in baseball. Like, they weren't even trying to hide their interest in Jason Kipnis. Um, so that's right, he started out at Kentucky because he's a, a kid from Indiana. Didn't play as a freshman. Sophomore, he uh, has a good season, but it's limited at bats. Goes to Arizona State and plays two more years there. So it's that he was a draft-eligible sophomore after uh, his first year there. 
and was technically a uh, draft-eligible junior when the Indians took him. Last two years, I mean, 371, 384 average. He had 14 and 16 home runs, on-base percentage of 45, 500, slugging him 667, 709. I mean, he was a monster. Um, they have him listed as a second baseman here on Baseball Cube, but he was an outfielder there. And the Indians decided to convert him. Now, he had been a second baseman in high school, and they wanted to trade, uh, get him to transition back. And at the time, I remember being like, oh, that works so well with Trevor Crow." So, <laughs> yay. But, you know, let's, getting back to it, not more focused on this, is 2009, I thought there was a chance they'd take him in the first round. I didn't want them to take him in the first round. But at the end of the day, um, he is going back to another, I just, I was thinking about another piece I wrote a few years ago, back uh, before Indians Baseball Insider, when it was Indians Prospect Insider, I want to say I wrote this piece before they went to scout and before all the craziness uh, therein happened, uh, whereas I, I went through from the 50th round on and did the single greatest pick at each of those ones, and I wrote about Albert Bell for a second round pick, and I talked about Jason Kipnis has a chance to pass him. Um, now, unfortunately, that didn't come to be. I think Bell is still the better player. But uh, Kipnis's performance just stands out because you go and you look at that class. 15th overall pick in the first round, Alex White. I liked the pick at the time. He was one of, like, three players I really liked with that pick. That was an interesting draft just because the first round produced so many future uh, Major League players. And, of course, that's the trap draft. Um, I don't know. At, at that point in the draft, honestly, when they took Alex White, the guys I remember being excited by, Kyle Gibson, who ended up going to the Twins, uh, was was my guy. That's who I wanted at that pick. Uh, I feel like maybe it was there Tim Wheeler, who was a Sacramento State outfielder. Didn't he go to... Yep, there he is. Never made to the majors. Um, was another guy I liked at that point, Rex Brothers went to the Rockies. Uh, those are guys that I was intrigued with. James Paxton, who didn't sign, was another guy I remember. So uh, White I liked. Kipnis I did not, and it showed how much I knew at the time and how little research I was. But it turned into an incredibly strong pick for the Indians. One of their top three second-round uh, picks of all time for that franchise. Turned into uh, their third-best second baseman of all time. Four stellar seasons, and... He just had a natural aging curve. You know, that happens sometimes. It's just the truth of the matter. He did not have a unusual aging situation. He hit his 30s, and some guys, that's just kind of where it starts to end. Other fun facts about that draft. Um, I've talked about how we'll go and do some more draft stuff historically at points in time, so I don't want to talk too much. Uh, I believe the second-best player they drafted that year in terms of Major League production was a 48th-round pick who they cut, uh, Vidal Nuno, who... Found a pretty successful career as a lefty, kind of a depth arm. Uh, wasn't bad in the minors, an odd cut at the time. I, I'll never know exactly what happened there. The biggest name from this class who did not sign, Max Muncy, who was taken uh, in the 41st round out of Keller, Texas. It's, there's always a few of those guys. Don't don't think it was some huge mistake on their part. Those Anything after round 30 is probably a guy they didn't think they were going to be able to, to keep there. So that's Kipnis. I've talked about him a lot. Let's move on to number two, or 20th all-time on the list, and that's Bobby Avila. Bobby Avila, when you go and you look at those numbers in the 50s, he you know he came at 49 through 15, 58 with the Indians. Uh, his age 59 year, 
he would play for three different teams. Um, didn't really work out for any of them, and that was essentially the end of it. Vila was a three-time All-Star in Cleveland. He won a batting title in Cleveland. Um, didn't debut till age 25, which limited some of his uh, ability to uh, accumulate stats. But still, it's, I think he is pretty clearly the number two second baseman in Indians history. Vila started in the uh, Mexican League as a professional at age 19. The Indians signed him in 48 for uh, $17,500 and assigned him to the Baltimore Orioles, who were at the time uh, a AAA farm squad for them. The Orioles would come into existence in 1954 as a pro team, but before then uh, it was a moniker for the minor league team that was connected to the Indians. Avila was stuck behind Joe Gordon, and while he was performing in the minors, eventually his age 25 season debut he only appeared in 31 games that year because the Indians had Joe Gordon, future Hall of Famer that we've already talked about, um, manning the position. Now, after that, in 1950, he got uh, some more limited time at the position. And in 1951, at age 27, that was really his first extended chance in the bigs. 304 average, 374 base, um, base percentage, 410 slugging, finished top 10 in the MVP, uh, double-digit home run guy. Next year... Another 300 hitter, uh, you know, 117 OPS plus the year before, 125, and that season, the next season makes the All-Star team. A uh, little bit of a down year for him, but still a league average bat in 53. 54 is the batting title year, uh, 139 OPS plus, finishes third in the MVP. He's an All-Star again the next year, though there is some notable decline in his age 31 year. And after that, his age 32 and 33 and 34 years are a lot weaker. He's closer to a league average bat. Now, this is where it gets interesting because when you're comparing him to Kipnis, um, again, it's, it's basically those four standout years. And then he has the advantage of having two other strong years where Kipnis didn't have that. He doesn't have the, uh, the four and the heights of Avila were higher than Kipnis is. So... He gets the uh, he he played longer in Cleveland. The peaks are higher. There's more of a mid range for him. Uh, did more throughout. So I think when you have Kipnis versus him, it, it's a, it's a pretty solid and easy choice. Uh, he would retire, go back to Mexico, and get into politics. But uh, second baseman uh, number two, second at second, Bobby Avila for the Cleveland Indians, and number one. Do we even really need to talk about it? I mean, it, it's not Blashaway. The team was named for him for a time, for Christ's sake. Uh, he is number one in war all time. Uh, there, He is at 79.4. Tris Speaker, 74.4. Then Lou Boudreau, 61.6. Earl Everill, 50.9. And then Kenny Lofton, 48.6. And again, that just those two guys in the 70s show just how good they were. Lajaway, uh, number two in offensive war at 68.3 behind speakers. If you go and you just look at like top seasons, he has in terms of war for the Indians, the third, the fourth, and tied for the 10th best season, as along with the 14th and the 15th best season and tied for the 19th best season. Um, in terms of offensive, he had the single best offensive year. Uh, just for war for a hitter, and the second-best offensive war for any hitter uh, amongst Cleveland Indians history, and he also has the 14th-best season. So where do we start with his story? Um, 
you know, it's he started out with Philadelphia and didn't actually come into Cleveland until his age 27 year. Um, we'll get into that in a second. And then he was in Cleveland from 1902, which is that age 27 year, all the way through his age 39 year in 1914. Um, just some amazing... He has a year where his OPS plus in Cleveland is 202. So his production is like twice what anyone... I mean, I've never seen one that high. Um, it's just unbelievable. 376 average, 413 on base, 546 slugging, 959 OPS, 202 OPS plus, 302 total bases, 102 RBIs, 49 doubles, 208 hits. And I say all those because he led the league in all of those categories. Whew. You know, it's it's he was an offensive monster. So where should to begin? Do we start with the fact that, you know, he was in the National League with the uh, Phillies jumped over to the American League, um, joining the Athletics, also both of those being in Philadelphia at the time. And eventually after that, he jumped over to the Cleveland Broncos, which is where he debuted. Uh, He was so popular that the team changed their name to the Napoleons, which everyone called the Naps for short. And that was the team name until he left. Uh, He, uh, and that's when they became the Indians. you know, it was basically like him and Ty Cobb were, were the hitters of that era. We talked about Ty Cobb with Tris Speaker as well, but those guys were kind of a, a level apart. Um, you know, Lajouet, according to Cy Young, was one of the most rugged players I ever faced. You'd take your leg off with a line drive, turn the third, race, third baseman around like a swinging door, and powder the hand of the left fielder. Uh, he went into the Hall of Fame in 37, and that is, again, unsurprising. So how Lajoie gets the interest, Indians, is in and of itself interesting. Uh, he had gone over to play in the newly created American League, and a Supreme Court ruling in Pennsylvania had basically said that uh, contracts between NL clubs um, were ironclad, and he couldn't go play for an AL team. Uh, but the issue then was this injunction barring him for playing any other baseball team was only in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, so he was then traded to the, the Broncos, a.k.a. the Indians. Um, basically because that's... They didn't... Uh, Connie Mack, who was managing then, wanted to spite uh, the Phillies, and he liked Indians owner Charles Summers and decided to help him out. And he was such a big name that immediately upon arrival, you know, they started selling out, and he just, he dominated. He was one of the great players of that era, um, just one of the truly dominant force of nature uh, as a second baseman, and you can look at those early Indians teams and the number of Hall of Famers and guys on them, it's like... The 90s were a glory day for the Indians, but so were the 1900s. Like Those were probably the two best times to be an Indians fan. There's just a million and a half facts we could put in when we're talking about uh, Lajoie from his competitions with Ty Cobb. You know, I mentioned he's a Hall of Famer, which I think everyone knows, but he's in the second class ever. There's Ogden Nash has a poem for him. Uh, there's the big controversy with the uh, Chalmers Auto Company. Um, and their roadster based on the batting title and the competition between him and Cobb for that. You could go in a million directions, and that's part of what makes his story so interesting. It's, or I think one of the things that stood out is I was just going through 
being a bit lazy and looking through the wiki is that he was the third player to get to 3,000 hits. Like, that's the era where he was just the third player to get there. Uh, ended up playing through the age of uh, 41, I want to say. Yes, his 1941 season. He leaves Cleveland 1915 and 1916. He goes back and plays for Philadelphia, plays for Connie Mack again. Uh, his 14 seasons, final season with the Indians, you know, his age 39 year, he started to decline. You know, it's got to happen to us all sometime. I mean, here's a guy in his age 35 year, had arguably his third greatest season, a 197 OPS plus, which wasn't best in the league, but still hit 383 to lead the league in average. Um, in his prime, he hit 426. Uh, you know, that's a pretty good year. So I, that's just what you're seeing. You go up and down the lines, 21-year career, 3,243 hits, uh, 82 home runs, because, again, the era he played in, 380 stolen bases. I, he was just... There is some debate about how good of a defender he was. That's one of those things that's kind of always hard to nail down with these type of players. But one thing that is easy to nail down is he was a transcendent talent. Um, we talked about Tris Speaker being the highest paid player in the league. Uh, so was Nat Blagio when he was with the Indians. <laughs> Again, this is why it was a great time to be an Indians fan. They had two guys at, at the 1900s through 1920s who went on to the Hall of Fame who they kept for decades plus and made the highest paid players at their position you know there wasn't really free agent there wasn't there wasn't any free agency then but uh they still paid those players what they were worth um that's part of the reason they got Tris speaker and you know nat blagioy had a long career in cleveland and i mean just go through the list like his most similar by age like he blagioy probably in terms of the world doesn't get as much credit as he should but 22, Stan Musial, Al Simmons, Pete Browning, Pete Browning, Al Simmons, Paul Wehner, and then from 30 to 41, it's Honus Wagner. His most, his best similarity score, Honus Wagner, Frankie Fish, Paul Wehner, Tony Gwynn, Rod Crew, Eddie Collins, um, also in there. Uh, he, you know, his, every single player he comps to in the similarity score is a Hall of Famer. Every single one. They all have this, the, the star next to their name. Uh, you know, I mean, this is just one of those where there is no debate. They named the team after him. Um, he was first in fielding percentage, first in turning double plays, uh, range factor, which didn't really exist then, but he, he dominated in that. Um, they named the team after him, basically, for a good 15 years, and he was a star, and he is one of the two guys who kind of stand alone on top of the Indians' record books where offensively no one can uh, can come up to them. Uh, eventually, you know, probably this week or next, because we were looking for content, uh, we're going to start diving into the Indians' all-time pitchers. And, of course, Bob Feller is going to be someone else we talk about. And then, you know, we can talk about that Mount Rushmore. But I, the Mount Rushmore of the Cleveland Indians, Nat Blagueway is on it. He's one of the, the great players in Indians history. He... Um, was an offensive force for the team at the turn of the century and became just synonymous with the Indians before they were ever the Indians, back when they were the Broncos and then the Naps and then they became the Indians. Thank you for listening as we finally get through the all-time Indian second base. A uh, long episode today, but uh, I wanted to get it all together, done and out. Fun group uh, amongst the last three, a guy who just was a transcendent talent, uh, a player, who was one of the best second basemen of the last 20 years, 
And another player who I feel like Bobby Avila, just to talk about him at the end, is kind of a little bit forgotten in Indians lore. Um, not someone I had heard about a ton I know growing up, so it was fun to kind of dig into him. I hope you've had fun with this series, the debates, the talks, the names. Um, outside of Catcher, it was pretty fun to do. Catcher was kind of a, a disaster show for the Cleveland Indians, but the rest of it's been interesting. We still have starters and relievers to go, and if you know baseball, you know that relievers one is going to be all people in the last 30 years. So if these have been too uh, old-timey focused, you'll be happy when we get to relievers. Thank you for listening. You have all been awesome. I have been Jeff Ellis. This has been Lockdown Indians, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network. And as always, go Tribe.